Une Europe concrète, une Europe réelle où l'on puisse sans entrave circuler, dialoguer, communiquer, échanger. The single market is not complete. Its achievement cannot be taken for granted, and it requires work and effort to preserve it to make it future-proof every day. 30 years ago, in 1993, a cornerstone of European integration was laid. The European Single Market for Goods and Services. The European Single Market is a tool that facilitates trade between businesses across Europe. More generally, it was built with the idea of making citizens' lives much easier and fostering prospects of economic growth and therefore well-being. Yet this groundbreaking project of European integration has not been spared by criticism. For some, it streamlined economic integration at the expense of social Europe. Today, on the Bull Europe podcast, what is the future of the European single market? And can it help to achieve a greener, more social and digital Europe? Hi, my name is Gail Rago, and I'm your host for this episode of the Bold Europe podcast. To uncover this complex topic, our guests today are Anna Cavazzini and Philippe Pochet. Anna Cavazzini is a German member of the European Parliament for the Greens EFA Group. Anna chairs the Committee on the Internal Market and Consumer Protection, and she also seats at the International Trade Committee. Philippe Pochet is the General Director of the European Trade Union Institute. He is also a professor of the Université Catholique de Louvain and an associated researcher at the Inter-University Research Center on Globalization and Work. Prior to becoming Director of the ETUI in 2008, Philip was Director of the Observatoire Social European for 16 years. Hi and welcome to the podcast, Philip and Anna. Hey, great to see you. Hi, nice to be with you. Let's start this conversation with the essentials. 30 years ago, the four fundamental freedoms that drive the single market were implemented. Freedom of goods, freedom of movement, freedom of services, and freedom of capital. This sounds quite technical. Anna, could you perhaps give us a short overview of what the European single market is and what exactly is being celebrated today? We are celebrating 30 years of the internal market, and I would say the internal market is the backbone of European integration. If we can go today in another country to live there, to study there, or open a business there, or also as a consumer, be sure that product standards are on the same level all over the European Union, or if I'm a business can basically sell products all over the European Union without any customs declaration. This is the internal market in very practical terms. And it started 30 years ago and has evolved since. I think it is good that we assess today a little bit where we stand. Thanks for that very succinct explanation, Anna. There are also some shadows when we look at the history behind it. Throughout the last three decades, the single market has been discussed controversially. Philip, could you maybe sum up for us some of its main criticisms? At the beginning of the single market, we were launching the internal market. What was the idea? The idea for the employers and the industrialists 
were to create some kind of European capitalism with the dollar time and the round table of uh, industrialists. The idea was really to create something at European level. And then you had the globalization, you had China change for the enterprise. And then the single market was integrated much more than at the beginning in the globalization. And now the single market is more associated to the regulation of some of the European standards. But still, as an asset, is the backbone of the European integration. It's the key element on which the trade union movement is negotiating some kind of social dimension. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this interplays with the social dimension or the social opportunities that came with the creation of the EU single market? In the 90s, the European Parliament was pushing hard to say, if you want to have a single market, you need a social dimension. And we need to have the social dimension at the same level that the internal market. It was the year before the single market, before 93. And that's important because that's kind of compromise. If you have to have a single market that will have an interest for the citizen, certainly for the companies, you need to accompany that with a kind of strong social ambition. And that was the case at the beginning, the attempt at the beginning. And then it faded. And now, once again, I think that's the key challenge. Thanks for that, Philip. Anna, would you like to add something? The first years of the integration of the EU single market were indeed marked by deregulation, of course, per definition, because if you want to abolish so-called trade barriers between the different countries and if you want to make it easier that uh, products can flow from one country to the other, that also means abolishing and harmonizing some national regulation. But I think we have moved away from this in the past years. We have really suggested and negotiated and implemented a lot of EU-wide legislation that is basically replacing a lot of these national legislations that we had in the past. And for example, really high consumer protection standards, environmental standards, but also the social dimension of the Green Deal. At the beginning, the social dimension was non-existent or much, much, much weaker than the economic freedoms. And this created a very unhealthy balance. So what the trade union, civil society, but also we as Greens had been fighting for in the last years is indeed a stronger social dimension of the internal market. And I would say we came halfway. We are not at the end yet, but I think a lot of things um, had improved also this mandate. For example, yeah, the minimum wage directive or equal pay or, of course, also portability rights. When you have social rights, you can take it to another country. So the social dimension grew stronger in the last years. Thanks for that. Maybe if we break that down a little bit when we're talking about social rights, Philip, if we're focusing on workers' rights, we can see how the trade union relationship with market integration has been contested since its beginning. Since its creation in 1993, the trade union movement has been raising its voice against an EU single market that prioritizes businesses over working conditions. Some of them have argued that the single market runs the risk of becoming an elite project. Do you think this criticism is fair, Philip? That's uh, old criticism. is fair because you have different interests. But uh, let's give an example of the fear of the trade union movement. We decided at the very beginning of the integration that we will not have a European welfare state. We keep that at national level. But 
In that situation, the national and the European should have the same rights. That was the pact in the 60s. And with the single market, with the posted worker directive, we had a completely different situation that you have posted worker coming and not having exactly the same right that the national. And that creates a lot of problems because they enter with the minimum wage. That was important. At least they had the minimum wage. But the colleague doing the same job at more than the minimum wage. And then create some tension that you put in competition the national space without creating enough at European level. And that was really for a long time the fear of the trade unions to have this competition on the same country between foreigners going few months in the labor market and national not having what was the project exactly the same right. There was a change in the posted worker directive. It's not perfect, but improve a lot the condition of competition. But that's really the fear, what we call generally social dumping. Great. Thanks for that. So really helpful to understand a little bit that tension between workers and when they move across Europe. Anna, before moving on to the next part of the interview, what do you think Europe has done so far to address some of these criticisms and to ensure that the single market is good for citizens, workers, consumers, and the environment. The last years really led from market completion to embeddedness of our like values. For example, this term, we created the biggest platform regulation ever on the globe. In our digital single market, we decided as European Union to give democratic rules to the big social media platforms in order to fight dangerous algorithms that spread hate speech and fake news. Another a second big and important example is that at the moment in the European Parliament, in the Internal Market Committee, we are negotiating the biggest circular economy package ever on the European level to make the internal market really green and to make sure that we use the power of the internal market to transform our economy. And I think these two examples show that this deregulation from the first years is a matter of the past and that we are basically on the right track. Of course, also accelerated by the poly crisis we are in, accelerating climate change, but also um, the war in Ukraine. I think all of these challenges show us and showed also our partners here in the European Parliament from the other groups that we need to put in place proper regulation and cannot only deregulate as it was at the beginning. Thanks for that. Actually, you mentioned, Anna, about circular economy. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about what that is, what it looks like, and how it can kind of combine with the single market to be good for all these players. Yeah, we are at the moment working, for example, on a legislation on sustainable products that will have the goal that all products on the internal market at the end will have to comply with circular product standards, for example, that they last longer, that there's no plant obsolescence in them, that they are repairable to really make sure that we get away from this like throwaway society to a proper circular economy. And I think this is really, if it comes at the end, we are still negotiating a very big step forward. Before we move on with the interview, let's recall some key concepts to understand clearly why the single market is a cornerstone of European integration. The single market ensures the free movement of goods, services, capital and persons by removing technical, legal and bureaucratic barriers. 
However, removing barriers between countries also meant abolishing and harmonizing some national regulations. Therefore, the first years of the integration of the EU single market were marked by deregulation and were highly criticized as there was no room for the social dimension. Yet, we have mentioned that the single market is an ongoing project that has evolved since its implementation in 1993. In the past years, different EU legislation opened the door to higher consumer protection, environmental standards and social rights. The minimum wage directive and the circular economy packages are just some examples. So far we have learned that the EU single market is a key part of the European Union and it aims at removing barriers to create a level playing field for member states. We've also heard about some negative effects and criticism, but there is room for improvement, as you've both said, and in fact the EU single market is an ongoing project. And as this would not be an EU-related podcast without asking qua vadis, single market, let's look to the future. Philip, where do you think the single market needs to go next? I think there is uh, three dimensions that we have to mention. The first is the, the environmental dimension, which is more than climate change. It is the environmental challenge that we have. We need to transform our economy. We need to think differently. We have already mentioned circular economy, but there is also much more than the circular economy. Or we consider the need, or we consider what is the good life. The second dimension is uh, related to the war, related to the COVID. We have to rethink the globalization. It's not to say that we have to stop globalization, to stop the trade, but it's clearly, if you look at what is happening in US or China, there is kind of regionalization of the trade, of the interest, and Europe have to think that is it's also important because if we have shorter supply chains, it's good for the environment. And finally, I think that we have to have this kind of strong social dimension that have emerged since the pillar, but has to really continue. And that's important to have quality job and not bullshit job that have no future, no interest and no personal development for the men and women that are working in that job. So the three dimension, I think, is environmental globalization to rethink that, not against, to rethink what is important and less important, and finally the social dimension. I love the term bullshit jobs. It definitely sticks with you, doesn't it? Uh, thanks for that, Philip. Anna, what about you? Do you see any larger trends that we need to address in the future? I also see the global dimension at the moment as a very strong trend or like debate that we're having at the moment. We're using more and more the internal market as a tool to also influence the way of production abroad. The commission had uh, presented an instrument to ban product made with forced labor on the internal market. And I think this is quite interesting example how we can use the internal market to also improve human rights elsewhere. Of course, it is important that we also always cooperate with the countries in the global south, that we have strong partnerships. But I think at the end, having also this economic tool as the internal market and the imports coming to the internal market, I think we can basically increase our effectiveness of our policies. Secondly, we are at the moment trying to draw the lessons from the pandemic because we saw in the pandemic that the internal market was really endangered. The borders were closed. We saw huge lines of trucks 
transporting, for example, foods for the supermarkets at the borders. And we saw border workers that could not cross anymore. So at the moment, we are debating in the European Parliament the so-called single market emergency instrument. So what happens in the future if there's other crises, for example, also something like a volcano eruption or whatever kind of crises, and how we can then make sure that member states don't only look on national level and withdraw a little bit from the European arena, but how can we use the strength of cooperation in a crisis? I think this is very important. And thirdly, and this is similarly to what Philippe has said, I think the green transformation, we need to think it in an even deeper and more comprehensive way. I think one good example and a step forward was the green industry plan that the commission uh, presented to say we need to make everything necessary that the green technology, the zero net technology is produced on the internal market in ecosystems that, that are cross-border where we make the most use of it in order to really produce all the technology we need for the huge transformation like solar panels or any other items. Anna, we were speaking about globalization and you've already told us a little bit about how the European single market stands in the world and how it's affecting issues around the climate change and better production outside of the EU. So I'm just wondering if there's anything else you kind of wanted to add about how the EU is using its power to export a green and social vision of the economy. The single market can be a very powerful tool and also shaping the globalization. Of course, it is true that when we started the single market and how it was done, it was in these years when everyone was a huge fan of globalization, when we were in this like era of deregulation and the WTO was founded and so on and so on. So we had a very predominant uh, business model back then. I think also when it comes to globalization, this narrative and the way of thinking um, changed a little bit. This fundamental model did not change, but at least we are thinking a little bit more in how to also make globalization greener, for example, when it comes to including more sustainability in trade agreements that the EU is doing with other countries, or when it comes to the regulation on deforestation-free supply chains um, that we also negotiated in the parliament successfully and that we pushed as Greens for a lot of years, or when it comes to, for example, the CBAM, so the protection of imports of fossil fuel-intensive or CO2-intensive products in order to have fair competition with companies within Europe that face higher climate standards. So we developed a lot of tools in the past years in order to shape globalization in a different way. And I think this is good, but we did not fundamentally change the way we look at globalization as the European Union. Um, I would say we are not there yet. Yeah, thank you. Philip, anything you'd like to add to that? I think that we have here a very important element and we have to think about the future, but we have also 
to keep the integrity of the single market. Because what was important, we had the same playing field between the different countries. And if we go for the future, we have more industrial policy, for example. We have green sector, which we deeply need. And we have to go fast and we have to take into consideration what the U.S. is also doing. We have to avoid to have a kind of duopole of France and Germany dominating this kind of new sector. And for avoiding to have that, I think it's important that we have an even more important European dimension that can create the possibility for investment, but for borrowing from uh, European resources. Thanks. While you were speaking, Anna, I was wondering, how are you kind of including the sentiment of civil society or who are the other actors that the parliament is working with, for example, to make sure that any changes for the future of the EU single market take into account a wide variety of interests? Philip? We need to have this kind of new uh, social pact that uh, could be interested. What is the internal market for the future? And if we agree that uh, because of the green transformation that is needed, it's not the quantity that is important. It's not the price, it's the quality. And with quality of product, you resonate with the employers. Employers should think about what kind of product they put in the market. If you speak about quality, that's quality of job. You have the example in Germany, machinery production in small and medium enterprise. You have good social dialogue within those enterprise. You have the negotiation between the two parts. You have a good wage. You have some equality in the wage distribution. And finally, that, that we are in changing society. So I, I think we have to think about beyond GDP or kind of post-grow vision and think what is quality of life? And that's resonate for a citizen, what they want to have as quality of life. If you put all that, you could have the employers interested by the product. You have the trade unions and the workers by the quality of employment and all the citizens wanting to think about their future. We saw also with COVID in many countries, people start to think about what kind of job I want, what kind of career, what makes sense for me in my daily life. And I think with that, we have all the ingredient to have a debate about this new project for the single market. Anna? When it comes to the internal market policies proper, I see that there is more business stakeholders that lobby as parliamentarians than other stakeholders. For example, when we discussed the famous platform regulation that I mentioned already, there was hardly any NGO. I think we didn't have any contact to really social partners, but a lot of businesses who wanted to talk to us. So I would say this classic internal market policies is probably still, yeah, needs probably more civil society activities. Let's end this episode by talking about the quality of life and about well-being. Currently, the EU market and also our society measure success around economic growth. However, tools such as the GDP were designed to count the production of goods in the market and not social and environmental impacts. So my last question to both of you is... Should the EU single market be shaped beyond just growth? Do you think that the European Union is ready for such a big paradigm shift? I definitely think that we need different measures in order to see if the single market is a success or not. When I was like, for example, negotiating the parliament resolution on 30-year single market, I checked all the data and it was pure economic data, yeah, more GDP growth, more trade across the border, la la la. And I think this 
time when this was the sole uh, indicator is absolutely over. I think we should at European level and for example, the German government, the Greens in the German government pushed this quite a lot and developed already alternative indicators for measuring um, success. The European Union should also have a discussion on different indicators and how to measure integration, the success of the internal market, because yeah, the current data and indicators as we're using them are absolutely not complete and give a wrong and very biased picture. Yes, I completely agree with that. It sounds like a really exciting, if challenging, prospect. Philip, what would you like to add to that? I think perhaps a, a dose of uh, scepticism about the dynamic. If you remember 15 years ago, we had exactly the same discourse and the same thinking about beyond GDP. And at that time, the commission was really forward. So it's not a new topic. What is new now, I think it's that we have to accelerate and we have to create some debate. And it's not that you can impose your own vision of life. And that's why it's important all the debate at European level, but also the kind of deliberative debate about that, because you can say we will change the indicator, but the person having the minimum wage, trying to have some holidays, uh, taking a flight to go to Spain, it will have no sense if you don't put that in a vision that you have more equality, more participation, more freedom, etc. So I think this time is the time not to have a report from the Commission, a report by high-level economists, but to try to have this kind of debate which makes sense for citizens, for workers, to have this kind of change of paradigms. It should be a shared mission for all the actors to try to shape the future with participatory measure. Right, yes. So I'm hearing that action needs to definitely be part of this utopian vision that we have. Thanks for that, Philip. Well, then, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your expertise. Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. And that was it for the seventh episode of the Bull Europe podcast, the podcast of the European Union office of the Heinrich Bull Stiftung in Brussels. Before we say goodbye, just a few more details about the report which inspired this conversation. 30 years of the European single market new visions for a green Europe is a collection of brief essays that authors such as Anna and Philippe wrote for Heinrich Bolt Stiftung, European Union. You can find the report at www.eu.bol.org. That's www.eu.boell.org. That's it for today. Until the next episode, goodbye.